1994, director Quentin Tarantino and star Samuel L. Jackson gave the world an explosive film that shines in its introspective moments. In 2019, Buffalo Trace gives us a whiskey that refuses to stay on store shelves. The film is Pulp Fiction. The whiskey is Weller Antique. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1994 classic. Bob, do you know what year it is right now? It's 2019. You know what year Which this means movie we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of... Pulp Fiction! Pulp Fiction. Last week we looked at The Lion King, and this week we are making a hard left turn into Tarantinoville. But children, both... you can leave this episode. Uh, yeah, right now. Well, first of all, children, why are you listening to an episode about whiskey? <laughs> but both of these movies are celebrating their 25th anniversary, and both of these movies have a tie to the current box office, right? So last really? week we talked about The Lion King. There's a new Lion King coming out this week. Quentin Tarantino is premiering his new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we figured what better time to get in the Wayback Machine yeah. and look at Pulp Fiction. You know what this reminds me of? What's that? When we watched that uh, terrible movie, uh, what was it called? Oh yeah, Goodfellas. Oh, that one. And it, it kind of how Joe Pesci was in Goodfellas in 1990 and also in... Home Alone. In 1990. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of like, we went from Lion King in 1994 <laughs> to Pulp Fiction in 1994. I feel like Pulp Fiction is just, if Scar could have really been himself... He would have been in Pulp Fiction. Who would he have been? All of them. <laughs> he would have been every character in Pulp Fiction. Okay. All right, before we get into things, I do want to say that this week begins a new segment we're doing on our podcast that we're calling... Bonus Bonanza. Bonus Bonanza. Brad and I have been hard at work recording bonus episodes for you. So we've got some where we're in the studio and it's just me and Brad shooting the breeze. We've got a couple where we have actually gone to distilleries. And I want to, spoiler alert here... Brad and I have taken a trip to the great state commonwealth of Kentucky, and we have interviewed three different distillers down there. Bob, what's Kentucky known for? Horses? Well, yeah. Muhammad Ali? Yeah, Louisville. Muhammad Mm -hmm. Ali. Yeah. I I feel like it's known for something else. Oh, maybe some bourbon? (laughs) Some bourbon. Hmm. So Brad and I actually took a trip down to Kentucky. We've interviewed three fantastic up-and-coming distilleries there, and we're so excited to get their My Favorite Movie episodes out. So every week for five weeks, we are dropping a bonus episode. So you'll get an episode Monday and an episode Thursday. We're calling it Bonus Bonanza. Bonus Bonanza. Guys, if I can be just completely honest with you. So the main thing that we want to get across to you is we love this podcast. We have so much fun at recording our episodes and doing interviews with CEOs and doing blind tastings and doing top fives. We absolutely love this. And we just want to bring you as much bonus content as we can. Absolutely. Because we love you guys. We, we do. And gals. Our loyal listeners. We love y'all. All right, let's get into talking about this movie. We've Pulp already Fiction. gone off a ways, so let's get into Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, 1994, directed by Quentin Tarantino. This was his second feature-length movie that he directed. If the, you've, this is this is gonna be a fun exercise. Yeah. If you've never heard of Quentin Tarantino, if somebody came to you and said, "Robert, I've never heard of Quentin Tarantino. Describe him to me in three words. Hmm. Describe his movies to me. What three words would you choose? Can be consecutive into a statement, or you know, just three random words. Hmm. Nerdy. Immature genius. 
I think I think with Tarantino, it's like I've seen Tarantino type movies done badly. And I know that one that's really popular would be Boondock Saints. Boondock Saints to me feels like a Tarantino type ripoff where the the screenwriter and director didn't understand how to actually make a good movie. Tarantino, he does dumb stuff. He does. He is immature. Ridiculous. Ridiculous stuff. stuff. But he also knows how to craft a fantastic movie. And I think that's what we have here with Pulp Fiction. And not just not just a fantastic movie, but a fantastic story. Absolutely. Which really drives you through the movie. And we've done a Tarantino film before. Yeah. We've done Inglorious Bastards. That was one of our first films that we did. Right. And now we're coming to what many would say, at the very least, it's Quentin Tarantino's most well-known film. Absolutely. If not his best film. Yeah. For sure. I mean, this is the one that that is on the American Film Institute's top 100 movies of all time. This is Tarantino's really? masterpiece. This made it to the top 100. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I don't think, you know, Brad and I grew up in the 90s, but this movie obviously came out at a time where we could not see it. Right. We were born in 1990 on the dot. It so. is impossible to overstate how much of an impact this movie had on cinema in the 1990s. This movie came out. It was an independent movie. Tarantino burst on the scene after Reservoir Dogs, and this was his follow-up, and it changed everything about how movies were made, how movies were viewed, how people wrote in the 1990s, and cinema ever since. And my boy Samuel L. Jackson was in it. (laughs) We'll get to talking about Samuel L. Jackson. But Brad, I've got some important questions for you. Had you ever seen the movie Pulp Fiction prior to this watch? Uh, I feel like I remember at one point I had seen part of it, but I hadn't seen all of it before. Okay. So this was your first time that you remember sitting down and watching the whole thing in one sitting. Yeah. And even, even beyond that, this is one of those movies. We talked about this with Singing in the Rain. Yeah. There's like YouTube clips. Yeah, of the movie. You've seen bits I've and pieces seen for bits sure. Bits and pieces of it, but I'd only seen like maybe the first half of the movie. Okay. So yeah. I get that. So this movie, uh, it came out in ninety four. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, and Bruce Willis are the stars of this movie. It won one Oscar huh. for original screenplay. It was nominated for six others. Define the category original screenplay. So original screenplay means a screenplay that's not based on something pre existing. So if so it's it an adaptation of Shakespeare, right, exactly. Could, an adaptation okay. of a book, an adaptation of a play, those would all be under adapted screenplay. This is something that the author came up with on his or her own that okay. was completely non-existent before it was written. This is a completely random question. What would you do with a remake then? Like The Lion King? It would probably be under adapted screenplay. The Lion King would be? Even if they're writing a whole new screenplay, they're basing it off of something pre-existing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. It was nominated for six more. John Travolta for Best Actor. Samuel L. Jackson Supporting Actor. Uma Thurman as Supporting Actress. It was also nominated for Best Editing, Best Director, and Best Picture. But it lost out on all of those. I think editing. I don't know what one editing yeah, yeah. that year, but the editing on this movie was so crisp and so sharp and just smooth. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, I th- yeah. So I think it's time that we get into our favorite segment around here. Brad explains. Uh, can we rename the segment like Brad clumsily explains? Yeah, I think our listeners already know that you're going to clumsily explain it, Brad. But thanks, Bob. So Pulp Fiction. <laughs> so Pulp Fiction, if you haven't seen it before, and I'm just going to blanket statement right now. This is another one of those movies that is to use the only word to describe is gratuitous. Hmm. It's a gratuitous movie. It indulges itself. If you're going to watch it, know that lots of bad things happen. Honestly, I think one of my favorite parts about the movie is the opening scene when you know it's black, and then the definition of the word pulp comes onto the screen. Yeah, and it it starts with like basically a mushy, smushy substance. 
is the first definition. And the second definition is a novel or literature that is written on crappy material about crappy subjects. Right, right. That's pretty much what it's about. Like like, CD type characters. Right. And so the essence was that Pulp Fiction was, uh, would you say in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Yeah, and before that too. And even before that, they would be these little like paperback novels. Like think about the Beatles, you know, paperback writer. Yeah. That they would write these little like crappy paperback novels that were printed on crappy material and they were just kind of seedy stories about crappy people. (laughs) (laughs) And if I had to wrap up my summary, that would be it. Yeah. But more fully, there is a crime boss named Marcellus Wallace, and he has two kind of goons that work for him who rough people up. They take care of the things that you would imagine mobsters have to take care of. And the film is separated into three different uh, stories. Stories. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that's the thing about pulp stories is that you would buy one book of pulp stories, pulp fiction, and it would usually have three or four completely different stories that had possibly nothing to do with each other or maybe one character that would go from the, one to the next. Kind of an anthology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what the movie is. It's right. an anthology of three stories. It's about these two hitmen who work for their boss, Marcellus Wallace. It's hard to sum up. This movie has a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta, um, he does a hit in the first part. He takes Marcellus's wife out. On a date that's not a date, he's just shown her a good time in the second half, uh, and then in the third half, he's nothing. And Samuel Jackson quotes the Bible and <laughs> kills people. So and- I'm going to jump into Brad Explains here, because I think you're right. Like, there are three distinct stories being told, and sometimes characters from one story will kind of filter in and out of another story. And one thing that Tarantino did is he told three small stories out of chronological order. For the most the biggest impact. So the last story in the movie actually probably happens close to the beginning of the chronological story. Right. But I think it might be more helpful to talk about the fact that all of the stories in this movie, I think, come down to what the characters are offered at the end of the story. And I think that all three of these stories are about characters who do really seedy stuff, finding a saving grace. And if you look at each one of these three stories, that's kind of where the narrative goes. You have a setup that's familiar to you. So like the the hitman taking out his boss's wife for dinner. Then you have that's super familiar. It's super familiar. Yeah. Then you have something that comes and complicates it that Tarantino throws in that you would never expect. And what Tarantino is doing is he is trying to get you off balance. Like he's trying to throw a curveball at you that you've never seen before. And so in that first story where John Travolta takes Uma Thurman out for dinner, it's she accidentally overdoses on heroin while in his company. And he has to rescue this guy's wife or face certain death. Right. And then at the end of that story, you have those characters kind of finding a moment of saving grace, which is she gets revived. She doesn't die. They both kind of get a new lease on life. They have this handshake agreement to not talk about it with the boss, Marcellus. And they it's this really sweet moment where John Travolta kind of blows her a kiss and says goodnight, and that's the end of it. Because what you expect is... The, the big conflict is, is John Travolta going to have sex with his boss's wife? And what Tarantino throws at you is something completely different. But where you end up is this beautiful moment of kind of redemption for both characters. Yeah. And the interesting thing for me about that moment is that Tarantino is not afraid to take forever to get there. No, not and at all. We talked about this in the Inglorious Bastards episode about yep. how Tarantino wants to to stretch that rubber band of tension and of suspense to the point where you think it can't 
stretch anymore without breaking. Yeah. And then stretch it three times further. Right. And he and he does that three times in this movie mm-hmm. in each, you know, story that he tells. Yeah. And you're just always on the edge of your seat. Absolutely. But you know the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's a little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup, I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the f*** a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it the Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call it? Wop? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. So the way this movie is set up was obviously not common at the time telling a movie out of chronological order. And this movie kind of gets held up a lot as an example of postmodern art because of the fact that it just doesn't care about structure. It doesn't care about any of these things. And Tarantino kind of came out and said, listen, part of the fun is that if you understand movies, you're watching the second story, which is about Bruce Willis as a boxer. And you think you're watching the boxing movie Body and Soul. And then suddenly the characters in that story turn a corner and they're in the middle of the movie Deliverance. And if you know anything about Deliverance, it's a movie where these guys get descended upon by, you know, people that live in the mountains and they get raped, essentially. And that's what happens in the second movie. And Tarantino says, you're sitting there as a viewer like, what? How did I get into Deliverance? I was in a boxing movie. What's going on here? And what Tarantino's doing is his whole goal, like I said, is to keep you off balance, to throw things at you that you've never seen, to complicate a situation in a way that it's never been done before. And I think... I mean, maybe I'm speaking just for myself here, but I think that every single time Tarantino does that in this movie, it works 100%. I would like for you to take an Instagram poll. Yeah. With this clip. Yeah. I don't think almost any of our listeners would have heard of Body and Soul or Deliverance. I've never heard of Body and Soul. I've okay. heard of Deliverance. It was It's a really famous movie from the 70s. Okay. But Tarantino's whole background is right. he didn't go to film school. He okay. worked in a video store. He's a nerd. Like he watched every movie in the video store a hundred huh. times. And that's how he got his whole knowledge of how to make a movie huh. was watching movies called Body and Soul yeah. and Deliverance and thinking I should mash these up into a movie. Yeah, that's really interesting because when you watch Tarantino films, he has such a unique style. Yeah. I mean, and that's like the most obvious take ever. But he he's just so unique in the way that he makes a film. I never thought of it before that he really does do his best to mash different movie styles together Mm -hmm. and he does it so poetically and interestingly that he can pull it off yeah but i don't know if many directors can i don't think they can either and part of the fun of watching this movie is looking at how each one of these stories tarantino kind of has a prologue to each one of them like i think about the second story about the boxer with bruce willis there's this random four minute prologue with christopher walken christopher walken and i want to get to that later because it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie but the first story has a prologue with them killing the guys. And then the second story has a prologue with Christopher Walken talking to a young Bruce Willis, you know, when he was a kid, the third story has a prologue, which is the prologue to the whole movie at the beginning. And you have to think back two hours. And we, and we thought that inception was a new concept, right? Exactly. (laughs) But the way this movie is structured is absolutely brilliant. And it's set up that each of these stories are put in their place to have the maximum impact on you. 
One of the most interesting things for me about the third act of the movie was that you already knew that Vincent was dead. Yeah. So that's like so interesting. I mean, it's been 25 years. We can spoil everything about the movie. But John Travolta's character, Vincent, he gets killed by Bruce Willis in the second story. And then the third story is basically a jump back in time to something that happened earlier. And we see Vincent alive again. And one of the funny things about how this movie was made, and it's really unpopular to talk about this human being now, but the movie was produced by Harvey Weinstein at Miramax Studios. When Harvey Weinstein was given the script to read for this movie, he took it on an airplane with him. And Tarantino being Tarantino, this script was like 150 pages instead of the standard like 105 or whatever. And so Weinstein starts reading the script and he calls his producer in the middle of the movie or his lawyer or whoever it is, his agent. And he goes, what is this movie? You killed off the main character halfway through. And the guy just said, just keep reading. And when Weinstein finally got to the end of the movie, he called from the airplane and said, we have to make this movie get Tarantino on board now. But you're, you're exactly right. I mean, they kill the main character halfway through the movie. So the thing is, there's a lot of different characters in the movie, but I would like, would it be okay to say Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta are the main characters? Yeah, I'd probably the call movie. them the leads of the movie for sure. Like Bruce Willis is almost there because he's the main in the second story. Right. But when you look at the bookends of the movie, I mean, it's it's Samuel L. and John Travolta. Yeah, I would say John Travolta probably is the main character. If the you, main? If you were going to like, well, again, I mean, the Oscars, they put John Travolta up as best actor and they put Samuel L. up as best supporting actor. But you told me that that's because they don't want them competing for the same thing. But sometimes they do. I mean, so it really depends on what the studio thinks is the main character. I would say the fact that the movie finishes with Samuel L. Jackson. I agree. I would say he's the main A hundred percent. And I think he's the most important character for sure. Okay. So, but I do want to say this, like the second story, the one with Bruce Willis. Yeah. It's, it's all about this gold watch that the Bruce. golden watch. Yeah. And that's the name of it. It's, it's called the gold watch. And for his whole life, Bruce Willis has had this prized possession of a gold watch that his dad wore in Vietnam. And <laughs> we'll get into Christopher Walken. <laughs> or. Yeah, he wore in a certain place <laughs> and it's been passed down for generations. And Bruce Willis is this fighter who was supposed to take a dive and doesn't. And before he can leave town, he finds out that his girlfriend forgot to grab his gold watch off the Fabian. nightstand. Fabian. Come and, on, Fabian. And so he has to go back and get his gold watch and shenanigans ensue. OK, <laughs> not shenanigans. <laughs> bad things ensue. Really bad things. Bad ensue. things. Bad. We could just end the podcast there. <laughs> bad things ensue. The second Qu- Quentin Tarantino directs a movie <laughs> called bad things, <laughs> bad things ensue. So this second story is always kind of held up as the part where the movie sags. And I think it's because it's two and a half hour movie. This is the middle of the movie. But watching it back this time, I have to say, I think the second story is way better than people give it credit for. When you said the word sags, I was surprised. Yeah, I think that it's definitely the slowest moving. It's like a slow burn. Because there's more action. People get shot and stuff in the, in the other ones. Samuel Jackson is quoting the Bible. But when you really take a step back and you realize this is an anthology, I think each one of these chapters, if you want to call them that, work perfectly on their own. One of my favorite camera shots from the movie was in the second chapter when Bruce Willis gets out of the car. He's going back to his apartment to get yeah. the golden watch. And the camera follows him through a set of apartment buildings, through a yeah. field, in... He's kind of checking out his own apartment buildings. Yep. At first, you think 
You're like, man, he just parked in front of his own apartment building. He's an idiot. Right. But that single following camera shot as he goes through the fence. It's beautiful. It's so yeah, good. It's a great shot. Yeah. Maybe this is a good time to talk about this because I feel like our podcast today is just all over the place, but that's because this movie has this weird sort of episodic feel to it. So maybe we should just jump into talking about our favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah. And the funny thing is I wrote down like seven or eight scenes and they just basically span the whole movie because the whole movie is just a great scene. Yeah. You got the prologue with Jackson and Travolta where Samuel L. Jackson eats a cheeseburger and shoots a guy and quotes the Bible. You read the Bible, Greg. Yes. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers and you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee it's fantastic that's probably the most well-known scene of the movie I would think so well there might be one that's more well known than that and that would be the second one I wrote down which is the dance between John Travolta and Uma Thurman Uh, it's become an iconic moment yeah you're probably right and you got you basically got fat John Travolta you know (laughs) who was in a total career slump at this point I mean they did not want to hire him and Tarantino was like this movie doesn't get made if I can't hire John Travolta. Really? This movie, c- complete career turnaround for John Travolta. That's really interesting. But you've got this iconic character of the 70s from Saturday Night Fever in Greece getting on the screen and dancing again. Yeah. It doesn't get better than that. But one of the key scenes in this movie is in the first story where Mia Wallace, played by Uma Thurman, has overdosed and John Travolta has to plunge a needle through her breastplate and into her heart to restart her heart. Yeah. It was at the New York Film Festival and they started screening this movie and it got to the scene with the needle and someone fainted in the audience and they had to rush down the aisles and find a doctor to revive this person because the scene was so intense that someone passed out. Dang. And Weinstein actually came out afterwards and said, I was afraid people thought that that would have been one of my publicity stunts, but it really happened wow. because it was so intense. For So I'm not going to lie for me, that scene almost felt like it was a little bit forced. Interesting. How so? Like for me, that scene, the rest of the movie really felt smooth and it felt like that scene they were trying to force, not, not a laugh. That wasn't my favorite scene in the movie. One of the things I love about that scene is that they can find ways to get humor into it, even as you are on the edge of your seat. John Travolta's arguing with his drug dealer. He takes Uma Thurman to the house of his drug dealer to try to revive her because he knows he can't take her to a hospital. And they're bickering back and forth while Uma Thurman is just like laying there on her front lawn. You know know. what I think it is? I didn't like the performance of the drug dealer. Interesting. He just kind of struck me as this, oh man, I don't know. There's something about the drug dealer that's just kind of like fake to me. Huh. Doesn't feel sincere. So that actor is Eric Stoltz. He was a pretty famous actor in the 80s. And Tarantino kind of gave him uh, a couple parts that he could pick from in this movie. And he picked that part. Was one of the other parts the part Jimmy actually played by Tarantino? Yes, that was the other part that he gave him an option to take. I could see... 
Eric Stoltz playing that role as well. Playing Tarantino's part in the third story. Yes. Interesting. I'm glad you picked that out because that was the other option that he gave him. Yeah, I could totally see him doing that role as well. And I think he would have been better in that role. Okay. I don't know. There's something about this role that just felt fake and forced to me. And hmm. granted, it's a minor role in the movie. Yeah, so it's not absolutely. like it ruins the movie or anything. Yeah. And he did fine in the role. I just didn't care for it. And so maybe that's the reason why I didn't care for that scene quite as much. Yeah. One of the things that you don't really notice as you watch this movie is how big and expansive it really is. And I, re- I realized it when I was watching that scene with Bruce Willis that you were referring to a minute ago as he was walking through rows of apartment buildings that as you watch each story, it's so immersive that you kind of forget about the other characters in the other stories, which I love. I love that, too. And you don't realize Tarantino made this movie on, I think, like an eight million dollar budget. And it has so many characters, so many actors, so many extras. It's essentially like an epic film being told on this really small independent movie budget and scale that you don't quite realize how big it is at times. That's $8 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That includes paying Samuel L. Jackson. And- Everyone took a pay cut for this movie. Yeah. And, and some of the bigger actors took a percentage of the profits, but no one knew it was going to be as huge of a cultural phenomenon as it was. They just wanted to really work with this new up-and-coming director. So was this a cult hit, or did it truly make millions at the box office? Oh, it made a ton of money at the box office. Really? So Tarantino made this movie Reservoir Dogs in 1992. It went to the Cannes Film Festival, and he was in demand from that point on. He'd already been developing Pulp Fiction. So they gave him a way bigger budget for Pulp Fiction, even though it seems paltry, right? Right. He went off and made Pulp Fiction. I don't know, man. $8 million does not seem paltry to me. Well, not to me. (laughs) I wish I had $8 million right now. (laughs) He makes Pulp Fiction. They sell it on the power of people like Bruce Willis, who's one of the biggest movie stars in the world at that point. It goes to the Cannes Film Festival and it wins the the big prize, which is called the Palm Door, the Golden Palm. Explain Cannes just in a few words. Yeah, yeah. So it's this film festival that's held held in France. It's considered like the most prestigious film festival. It's also the one where the most critics go. And in France, like at the Cannes Film Festival, people will like boo your movie during the movie if they don't like it. It's just this crazy atmosphere. Huh. So this movie wins essentially best picture, the Golden Palm. And from there, it takes off. Weinstein does his thing. He pressures Academy voters. He does everything he's supposed to do. This movie gets nominated for best picture. So Weinstein's good at pressuring people. Yeah, right. Who would have thunk? (laughs) But it blows up at the box office. I think it makes like cumulatively like 200 something million dollars. Yeah. So like I said, Brad, this movie is a cultural phenomenon. Man, I just looking at 90s culture that that's amazing to me that I just feel like 90s culture hadn't fully let go of its 50. Like we want to be like the 50s and wholesome. Well, this movie shook that out of the 90s. That's what I'm saying. And that's the thing is we talk about 90s culture and in a way, Pulp Fiction is 90s culture. Like we're still in the earlier part of the 90s. We're getting into the mid 90s now, but I feel like the, the decade hadn't really defined itself. And then Pulp Fiction comes out. And from this point on, everything we look back on culturally in, in mass media and TV in movies, it is because of Pulp Fiction. And I don't necessarily want to use the word raunchy. Well, what you had was you came out off of the 1980s. And if you remember like action movies of the 80s, they were like larger than life. It was Terminator. It was. Well, yeah. And and all the other ones that Schwarzenegger made after that Commando and Predator. You had uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone making tons and tons of gratuitously violent movies. And here you have this guy, Tarantino, who he has gratuitous violence, but then he also has two characters sitting in a car talking about what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in Paris. And he really shifts the paradigm of what it means to make an R-rated movie. And it's all about dialogue. I never thought about that before, but when you compare it to the gratuitous films of the 80s, Tarantino is 
light years ahead of what they were doing. I mean, he takes film to a whole new level of, and and that's that's the problem and the genius of of Tarantino is, is he just an idiot that makes gratuitously gross movies or is he a genius that understands the human psyche and the human soul in ways that most people don't? Yeah. Here's the crazy thing about this movie. I've probably seen it, I don't know, 15 times. I love this movie. Brad, you really like this movie too. And we're like a half hour into this podcast now. And I feel like we haven't even really gotten our minds around how to talk about it how to start talking about it. we haven't talked about any of the performances yeah we haven't talked any analysis of this movie we're just getting our initial thoughts out there and we're already at the time where we need to take a break it's time for us to try some Dude, whiskey i need some I need we some need, whiskey, we need real this bad. whiskey right now so brad what do you say that we try weller antique let's do it man all right so today we're talking about weller antique now we have tried Weller Special Reserve, which was Weller's Green Label a couple weeks ago. And we're continuing our Summer of Bourbon. We're in week... Summer of Bourbon. We're in week five of the Summer of Bourbon, so there's one more to follow this. Oh, Bob, I'm sad. I know, right? I love bourbon. But I promised when we tried Weller Special Reserve that I would bring Weller Antique. Weller Antique, full disclosure, this might be my favorite bourbon. Really? It's a $30 bourbon. Well, I think it smells like crap, Bob. If you can find it at retail, it is a steal. It's $30 in the state of Ohio, and I got it for $30. Good job. But this is one of the two wellers that you mix to make what they call poor man's pappy. You know what, dude? The more we've done this podcast, the more I'm like, what's so stinking special about pappy? And that's the thing, is that people who have had pappy and who know pappy pre the bourbon boom say, weller antique might be better than pappy. And so if you can get it for $30, please do. But if you go, you know, in other states, people are marking this up to like $200 a bottle. It's insane, Brad. This. This. What we're drinking today. $200. $200. So Weller Antique comes from Buffalo Trace Distillery. It is uh, bottled at 107 proof. So it's a little bit higher proof. Um, That's one of the highest proofs we've drank. Yeah, yeah. So there's no age statement on it. We know that that means it has to be at least four years old. The four. youngest in the blend has to be four. Right. Most people guess that this is closer to like a six-year-old blend. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this one? You know, this is giving me very fresh notes. And I, I don't want to say bright. Uh-huh. Bright's a different word. It's It feels very refreshing to me. Yeah. Like, like a glass of w- cold water on a hot day. I don't know. It, it definitely is a little bit brighter, um, a little bit more fruity smelling than the special reserve that we had. Now, we have been letting this mellow in our glasses for a couple of minutes, so we may have, we may have missed some of those initial smells that you get with the bourbon of a vanilla, uh, you know, the oak, the brown sugar, the, the maple. Ethanol. The ethanol, for sure. <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and uh, score this out, though, before we give it a sip? What would you give it on the nose, Brad? This is one of the most pleasant bourbons I've smelled. I'm going to give it an eight. An eight on the nose. That, like, that's pretty high, but I like it. Absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and give it a seven on the nose. It's not un pleasant as brad said but it's also not doing a ton for me and i think part of that is because we've been letting it sit for a couple minutes i'm super excited to taste it why don't we give it a taste brad i think that there's certain notes of vanilla that that hit through in ways that i haven't seen with other bourbons yeah what I love about this bourbon is that it is a perfect encapsulation for me of everything i want people to to understand about bourbon. There's a little bit of smoke, but for me, I've I've said this before, I love sweet bourbons, and this is a sweet, sweet bourbon. So, 
Plato, the philosopher, had these ideas of... <laughs> the ideal. The ideal. <laughs> yeah. Which, essentially, an ideal was the perfect version of what you would find on Earth. Yeah. So this would be your platonic ideal. Look, I'm not saying bourbon. this is a perfect bourbon. What I'll say is this. But like, as close as it could come to on Earth. No. No, no. Here's what I'll say about it. It just, it has everything. It checks all the boxes that you want to introduce someone to whiskey or to bourbon with. Yeah. It's got a little bit of a like a, an interesting like briny flavor to me. There's a little bit of that like saltiness, but overwhelmingly sweet. It's 107 proof, so you get an alcohol burn. It's got some spice to it. The finish is pleasant. It's not bitter. It goes down smooth. It gives you that Kentucky hug. It literally, for me, it checks every box. If you were going to come to my house and say, what's a bourbon? I would say, here's some Weller Antique. Huh. I would agree with you on everything you just said. Mm -hmm. it, it has nice qualities in all of it. Yeah. But in a sense, don't and don't crucify me for this, is a jack of all trades, a master of none. Yeah, I get that. I get there that. is a sense of this is an every man's bourbon. Yep. And I guess, honestly, like you said, it's a $30 bourbon. Right. So it's not trying to be over the top at anything, but it's good at all of it. Yeah. All right. So, Brad, what would you score this on the taste? On the taste, I'm going to give it a seven. A it, it doesn't oh, quite man. live up to the hype of the nose for me. Okay. But it's still a, it's still in a... Above average isn't quite good enough of a statement. Yeah. Above, above average. <laughs> it's good. Kind of like it's ancient, good. ancient age. Just right. add another adjective. I'm tipping my hand here. I'm giving this a nine and a half on taste. Wow. I love this bourbon. This is everything I want in a bourbon. That's really high. Bob. I've told you, man. I love sweet bourbons. This is a sweet, high proof bourbon that isn't aggressive. Yes. Yeah. Not harsh. Yeah. It, it doesn't punch you in the face like a lot of the rise. Yeah. Do. It, I mean, if I asked you to guess if this was what the proof was on this, would you have guessed this was 107 proof? Above 90, like a 94. Yeah. 96. Yeah. Something like that. And it's rare to get something that's over 100 proof that that doesn't give you that sort of like tongue punching aggressiveness. Tongue punching. <laughs> All right. So Brad gave it a seven. I gave it a nine and a half. Uh, finish. What do you think? The finish is smooth. That, And I say that in a good way and a bad way. Like there's not a there's not a ton going on on the finish. Mm-hmm. But that's a good thing. It it moves from the taste down the palate, yeah. down the throat, and it, it doesn't punch you in any way. It no. doesn't hit you hard. It's a little bit of smoke. Yeah, I would probably give it a seven and a half on the finish. I'm over here, like, kissing the bottle, as Brad says. I love Bob's this Bob's turning whiskey. real Italian. I am. I'm, like, blowing kisses, and mwah. I'm going to give it an eight and a half. It doesn't have a perfect finish, but for what it is, I mean, it's just great. Brad, what would you score it at? Finish-wise, I would probably say about an eight. An eight. It's a nice, smooth finish yeah. that you would expect from a bourbon. Yep. Overall balance. I'm going to give it an eight as well. An eight. Yeah, it, it moves from nose to taste to yep. finish really smoothly. If I had to use one word to describe this, it's smooth. Man. Yeah. Smooth. The only thing that I'm going to knock it for on the balance is that I didn't find the nose to be really compelling. And it may have just been the glass I was using. And Brad and I are actually using different glasses for this tasting, and we swapped glasses halfway through. It now, changes things. Brad, your glass has a little bit more like a fluted thing going on, and and the nose was fantastic on yours. But Which the taste was completely get, different. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, on overall balance, I'm going to give it an eight and a half. It's still incredibly well balanced. I would have liked a little bit more out of that nose. Uh, and so that brings us to our final category, which is value. Now, we've already said... It's a $30 bourbon. You might be paying $200 for it if you're in a different state. Which is insane. It, you shouldn't pay $200 for any bourbon ever. 
I'm serious. Like I would probably agree with that statement. And and five years ago, ten years ago, you wouldn't be right. But the way that this bubble has been building, you're paying thousands of dollars for certain bourbons now, and it's just astronomically, it's ridiculous. So if you can get it at cost, even at forty dollars, let's okay. Let's say forty dollars in Ohio. It's twenty nine ninety nine. Right. But let's just say at forty dollars, what's your value score, Brad? At a forty dollar price point, I would probably give it a seven. Yeah. At a thirty dollar, this an and that's what and it is. Half. I paid twenty nine ninety nine yeah. for this. At it, let's just go with what we paid at yeah. twenty nine ninety nine, eight and a half. All right, I'm giving it a ten. 10 out of 10. Name me a $30 bourbon that's better than this. I like that James E. Pepper 1776 okay. a lot. All right. I would put that in a similar category of this, and that was $31. But again, two. I mean, if those are the only two. Yeah, I can't think of many. Then that would be a 10 for me. I'll, I can't I'll, find a $30 bourbon better than this. I'll up myself to a 9. All right, Brad's giving it a 9. I'm giving it a 10. That puts Brad out to a 40 out of 50. And that puts your boy Bob up to a 43 and a half, which puts us at an average of 41.75. We did it! (laughs) This is our top. And look, I knew I was going to skew the score a little bit, but I'm so happy to see that Brad gave this a 40 out of 50. This is a good bourbon. This is just darn good, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our last one that we had this high was a Glenmorangie La Santa. Yeah, right, and which that, is great. I think we averaged out to like a thirty-nine. Yeah, something close half, to it. We may like have that. come to a forty. Yeah, and and that's a Scotch, and it's a completely different whiskey. Yep. And you might as well have completely different categories for them. But this is a really great bourbon. Yeah, that I think your description is the best. If you want somebody to understand the highs that bourbon has to offer, yep. toss them some of this Weller Antique. If you have to pay $200 a bottle of it, don't Absolutely do that. Absolutely don't do that. Buy Heaven Hill Green Label and <laughs> right. show them that. I will say this. I think at the time I tried it, the best whiskey I had ever had was Old Forester Prohibition, okay. the 1920. That's $60 a bottle. I can buy two bottles of this for the price of one Old Forester Prohibition. Now, that is like a completely different beast. It's 119 proof or something, way thicker. It's it's a completely different bourbon. Very good bourbon. It's very good. For $30, you cannot buy a better bourbon than Weller Antique. Go buy it now. Right now. So Stop listening to the podcast. <laughs> Brad, would you recommend? It's a redundant question. No. <laughs> right. Terrible whiskey. Yeah, this might be my favorite whiskey. It's, yeah. Go it's buy just, it. It's just, it's so good. Go buy it. Go buy it. Go buy it. I'm so happy we're talking about it with Pulp Fiction because it's something I can recommend alongside a movie I'd recommend. Let's talk about it. So that was Weller Antique. Why do you say we get back into talking about Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino's 1994 masterpiece? Brad, Man, true masterpiece. I mean, seriously, it is. Yeah. It's 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 the work of a master. And there are so many directions that we can go with this. Yeah. We haven't talked about the acting at all, the performances. Yes. Yeah. So why don't we just run down the list here? We'll start with. Do we want to start with the the lesser actors? How do you want to go? Let's let's start with the lesser actors and move towards the Samuel and John. All right. Well, why don't you lead the way here? What lesser actor do you want to talk about here? Ving Rhames. Ving Rhames is fantastic. Yeah. Honestly, one of my favorite scenes from the movie, and not because it's technically brilliant or anything. I mean, it's well done. When Bruce Willis is driving and he's singing the song, and he's jamming <laughs> and he pulls up to the stoplight and the little old lady's walking by. I, mean, I don't know. Somebody walks by. But then Marcellus Wallace, Ving Rhames, walks in front and he kind of stops and literally he like takes like half a step backwards and looks at the car 
And he sees that it's Bruce Willis. And he sees that it's Bruce Willis? Yeah. I love it's that so scene. It's so funny. It's so funny. Quentin Tarantino said that he respected Ving Rhames so much because the, the you know, the, the key scene in the second story is that Bruce Willis sees Ving Rhames, who is the guy that's going to try to kill him when he goes back to get his gold watch. He he steps on the gas. He runs Ving Rhames over. They end up chasing each other through the streets. They end up in this pawn shop where they're knocked unconscious by what can only be described as a hillbilly. They wake up in the basement of this pawn shop and they find out that they are in the middle of some weird sex kinky stuff and that these guys are going to keep them and rape them. And Tarantino said that he respected Ving Rhames so much because he was the only actor that he tested that did not mind the rape scene. And he said Ving Rhames was so confident in his masculinity that he's the only one that didn't ask Tarantino, what's this going to do for my my screen image and my persona? And he was completely committed to doing the scene. And since then, he's just been Ving Rhames in Mission Impossible. Yeah, I mean, it didn't perfect. hurt his career at all. And I think I think that kind of teaches us a little bit of a lesson in that uh, Ving Rhames didn't care what was going on in that scene. So, you know, why should we in some way? But this was something that was like... We a- should care about it because that was a... That's a hard scene to get through, for it's sure. super difficult. But what I'm saying is all the actors that auditioned for that scene, that was their hang-up. They were saying, like, you got to cut away, or I won't do it. Ving Rhames said, I understand the weight that this has for the story, and I'm completely all-in committed to doing it. Yeah, if we can just address for a second that scene, because I think that scene is the reason why Pulp Fiction is such a hard movie to ever recommend. Yeah. And I know we're getting to the very end of the sure, know, sure. the episode where we normally say, would you recommend? It's hard for me to recommend any movie that would include that type of material. Yeah. I completely understand. And and we talked about Inglorious Bastards when we reviewed that one. And that movie has some over-the-top, comically exaggerated violence. Right. I hated watching the guys get scalped in that movie. Right. This is a different beast. I think that its themes go way deeper and way darker. Yes. When we see John Travolta injecting heroin into his veins in what is only presented as what the way it's filmed, it's glamorized almost. Right. When you see the brutality of Ving Rhames getting raped. I mean, you can't recommend this movie because people's tolerance to these things are going to be all over the place. Right. It's not just that it's the violence of the movie. It's the way that every action taken in the movie is violent. Yes. There's something about this movie that is so otherworldly, yeah, almost like holy of like this movie just evokes these sense of like like Samuel L. Jackson, especially when he gives his biblical quote from Ezekiel, yeah, you just get this sense of otherworldliness that this movie isn't normal. It's way beyond the plane of normal movies. And it makes me go, I don't know what to do with this movie. And it's all encapsulated in the second act when Bruce Willis and Ving Rhames are are dealing with hillbillies who want to sodomize mm-hmm. them. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know if I could ever recommend this movie, but I don't know if I could ever not recommend this. So movie. the first thing I would say to that, Brad, is I think I used a word earlier to describe this movie and it was epic. And I think in some ways we have to look at Tarantino the way we look at like a Tolkien or a C.S. Lewis, or any of these people who craft these worlds, because Tarantino does an amazing job of world building in this movie. And part of the reason this movie affects us the way it does is that it's so immersive. We get into the world of this movie, and it's so unique, and it's like nothing we've ever seen, and we buy what Tarantino is selling. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes across as authentic, and it comes across as unique because we don't see it anywhere else, but the reason this movie hits us at the level that it does 
is because Tarantino is so good at world building. Right. Yeah. Let's let's delve back into performance. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get back into talking about performances. And one of the ones you know to lighten the mood a little bit here that I loved so much was Christopher Walken, because I I think his scene, his one five minute scene or whatever it is, is fantastic. And what I love about what Tarantino does is he's underrated as a director, because when you look at the list of people in this movie, he has a bunch of actors that are not known for their subtlety. And he makes them play really subtle, like Christopher Walken in this scene where he's talking to this young boy, Butch. For most of the scene, he's talking in like a really quiet, reverent tone. And you don't see Christopher Walken do that very often. I mean, you've got Walken, you've got John Travolta, you've got Harvey Keitel and Samuel L. Jackson, none of whom are known for being like quiet, introspective people. And he puts them in these situations where you absolutely buy Samuel L. Jackson, you know, in a face to face with Tim Roth talking about the Bible in a really hushed way. And he brings that out of his actors. I'm, I'm super impressed by what he does as a director. I would be really interested to see like behind the scenes footage of Tarantino coaching his actors. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? On how to evoke the emotions that they show yep. and to give them their motivation and why they're doing the things they do. Yep. I just feel like Tarantino would be fascinating to listen to. Absolutely. Any thoughts on Christopher Walken? Christopher Walken is such an interesting character because of the cadence of his voice. Yeah. That like any role he does, you're kind of like, oh, well, that's Christopher Walken just being Christopher Walken. Right. This role felt different. It did. Because he wasn't just relying on the cadence of his voice to kind of create intrigue and interest. Yeah. His storytelling ability in this scene was... One of the things I noticed in this movie and that you don't get in later Tarantino is that he'll just kind of sit the camera like in the corner of a room and let characters go in and out of frame. And that shot will last for like a minute and a half. And what they do with Christopher Walken is they just put the camera on his face and it's like an extreme close up. It's from eyebrows to chin and that's it. And Walken holds the camera for, I don't know, probably a minute at a time. And it's really compelling to watch. This watch is on your daddy's wrist when he was shot down over Hanoi. It was captured put in a Vietnamese prison camp. He knew that if the ever saw the watch, it'd be confiscated, taken away. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any was going to put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright. So he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. Then, after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I give the watch to you. And then when he finally gets to the point in his story where he says, I put this watch in my butt, like... Yeah, it becomes so funny because it's so unexpected. And again, we talked about Tarantino kind of subverting expectations, but you're with Christopher Walken because he's crafting this really serious drama about this watch that's been passed down for generations. And then all of a sudden he introduces, yeah, I wore this inside my butt for five years and here you go. Now it's. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So let's let's zoom back a little bit from that. And I want to talk about the leads. But very briefly, I mean, what are we going to say that hasn't been said before? Like Samuel L. Jackson is good. Like we all know this. 
We know Travolta was not wanted by the studio, and Tarantino dug his heels in, and he got Travolta. I think Travolta's fantastic. Can I you think tell he, me more about that story at all? Yeah, so throughout the 1980s, Travolta had become basically like box office poison. You know, he made a sequel uh, to Saturday Night Fever that was a bomb. He was in a, a few bombs in the 80s. And by the time you get to the early 90s, he's making these movies called Look Who's Talking, which are about talking babies. And he's like the voiceover of the talking baby. Really? Yeah, dude, he was he, he had kind of hit the skids a little bit. And so Tarantino really, really wanted him. And Harvey Weinstein had said, listen, I can get you Daniel Day-Lewis right now for this role. Daniel Day-Lewis wants to play Vincent Vega. Really? Tarantino said no. And part of me really wants to see what a Daniel Day-Lewis Vincent Vega looks like. But we didn't get Daniel Day-Lewis. We got John Travolta. And I think they made the right call. Yeah. What did you think of Bruce Willis in this movie? I would say one of his best performances because he... Bruce Willis shines when he moves from one extreme to the other. Mm. You know what I mean? Like when I think about him in the sixth sense, Haley Joel Osment is the star of that movie. Right. But like, honestly, Bruce Willis kind of turns in a blase performance in that movie where he just kind of mopes through the movie. Yeah. Which works for his role. But like in this movie, you get Bruce Willis at his best where he plays that cool calm boxer who's fully in control of everything yep. to the psychotically angry that the, his girlfriend forgot the most important thing to him in the world. Yeah. There's something about him that Bruce Willis makes that transition from calm to psychotic so yep. well yep. that you get the best of that in this movie. Absolutely. And I don't know that I would call his performance, like in The Sixth Sense, for instance, blasé, but I think it gets at what you're saying. I think Bruce Willis does the best when he's given material where he's allowed to have quiet moments. Yes. Because so many of his movies, especially now that he's getting into, you know, older adulthood, where he's he's just making these direct-to-DVD action movies, are all about covering up those moments where he's not vulnerable, where he is just blowing stuff up all the time. But the reason we loved him in The Sixth Sense and the reason we love him in this movie is because there's so many stretches where he has to carry the scene as an actor in a quiet moment. And I think he nails it here. Yeah, the, his scenes with Fabian in the hotel room. He, he does. He hits every note that you need him to hit. Right. Whether it's the low notes, or the chill notes, the quiet notes, or the angry, the furious. He he moves between those two extremes so well. Yeah. And it's funny, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing one of the other actors in the entire pantheon of actors that does it so well, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. And I think it's time we talk about Samuel L. Jackson, because in my opinion, not only does he steal the movie, but he's the key to the whole movie. He, it's interesting, because if you just watch the YouTube clips of this movie, and you only see him quoting Ezekiel and, you know, gunning down a guy, you don't get the full breadth of what Samuel L. Jackson does in this movie. And it makes me kind of sad for where, not for where his career went, because obviously he's had a great career. For sure. But it's very rare that we see him operate on this level of subtlety. That final scene in the diner where he's talking in a very quiet tone to the guy that he has at gunpoint, and he's it's telling him all about that Bible verse and what it means to him. And you will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. I've been saying that shit for years. And if you heard it, that meant your ass. I never gave much thought to what it meant. I just thought it was some cold-blooded shit to say to him before I popped a cap in his ass. But I saw some shit this morning made me think twice. See, now I'm thinking, maybe it means 
you're the evil man, and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or it could mean you're the righteous man, and I'm the shepherd. And it's the world that's evil and selfish. Now, I'd like that. But that shit ain't the truth. The truth is, you're the weak. And I am the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. You see something in Samuel L. Jackson's eyes and in his tone of voice that he covers up so often by yelling things. And I just feel like maybe he's worked with lesser directors or something, but I want that Samuel L. Jackson all the time because he knocks it out of the freaking park. I was going to say, I feel like Tarantino lets him go there. Yeah. You know what I mean? He gives him the freedom to do with that part what he will, and he nails it. He, like you said, he knocks it out of the park. Absolutely. And I want to focus in on that last scene because I think it's time we get into our analysis and our final scores a little bit. The whole key to this movie is Samuel L. Jackson's character of Jules Winfield. And it's really a story about Jules's redemption, right? It really is. And I think, like I said earlier, it's a, on a smaller scale. It's a story about a lot of these characters kind of finding their saving grace. You know, at the end of Bruce Willis's story, he rides out on a motorcycle and the name of the motorcycle is Grace. Right. You know what I mean? For sure. But in Samuel L. Jackson's story, you see it happen in the most explicit way. And he starts talking about how God intervened in his life and that he doesn't understand why. He doesn't understand what it is, but he understands that he felt, he says, I felt the touch of God. And John Travolta says, why? He says, I don't know why, but he knows that he he says, I can't go back to sleep. And what this movie is really about is these two paths that these two characters take because Jules, Samuel Jackson, leaves the life of crime. We don't see him in the third er, in the in the story with uh, Bruce Willis. And we know that John Travolta doesn't think that this is a miracle, decides to continue on in this life of crime and he dies because of it. Right. And so it really is a story about redemption. And, And Samuel Jackson even said The people in this movie, in Pulp Fiction, the people who are worth saving get saved. The two robbers, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, get saved. They get get another chance. That's their redemption. Uma Thurman's character, he said, has the chance to die, but she didn't die. Butch, Bruce Willis's character, gets another chance. Marcellus Wallace even gets another chance. And I think he's getting at something here. And Brad, I want to know what your take is on what you think kind of the moral of the story is here and whether Tarantino kind of nails it with the way that he wrote it. That's so hard. Is there a moral to this story? Yeah. Because I, I look at this movie and I just think to myself, man, when you see all of the the horror that, that happens in this movie, of yeah. the, the crazy things that go on, like, can there be something redeeming to it? And I think that there is. There's something about this movie that taps into the depth of humanity's depravity yep and brokenness yep that when you you look at the end and you look at where Jules comes to you see that there's a point where he has a certain faith in a better world or a better place or a better plan that God has for him yeah that Vincent never comes to right that Vincent has this doubt about and you see how it turns out and I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the third scene of the movie is that you know that Vincent Vega is dead yeah 
I don't know why, but as we've been talking about this movie, that fact has grown on me mm-hmm. to consume to be the whole point of this movie is the third the third act knowing what happens yeah. in the second act, yeah. which is chronologically the final part of the movie. But the fact that they have that conversation in the diner at the end of the movie, and not even they, John and Samuel, they, you know, Samuel Jackson and the robber have mm-hmm. this conversation about grace and redemption. Yeah. And he realizes that these people are the sheep that need to be protected. Yeah. And that, that God has called him protect these people. And yeah. then you realize the fact that Vincent doesn't understand that lesson and he's actually dead. Yeah. Uh, there's so many things going on. Oh, there yeah. That I go... Tarantino's beyond any of us. What I love about, and I, I said this in our Inglorious Bastards episode, and I'm glad that I can say it again now. I feel like Tarantino makes a movie that's super nihilistic and dark and has no point. And then he makes a movie about redemption. And it seems like he goes in this cycle. So like Reservoir Dogs, and I know you haven't seen it. I'd love to watch it with you soon. It has this very nihilistic tone to it. Pulp Fiction has a redemptive tone. You know, we talked about Inglorious Bastards. It seems like it's super nihilistic. Yes. And, and cynical. Django Unchained is redemptive. hopeful. It's redemptive. And I think Tarantino's at his best when he's writing towards redemption. For sure. So, Brad, if you had to give this movie a score out of 10 with the challenges that it presents, but also knowing what a landmark of cinema this is, and still 25 years later, what a unique vision this is, what would you give it? 9.5. I think I'm right there with you. I want to give it a 10. See, that I wanted to give it a 9. Yeah. But I think I would, we have to meet in the middle here yeah. a little bit. There are a couple things in this movie that I don't think have aged super well. I think there's a couple little pacing issues, but overall, you yes. know what? Forget. No, I'm giving it a 10. I have to give it a 10. <laughs> it's just, I started it and about 15 minutes in, I was like, oh, maybe I won't like this as much because yeah. I'm watching it with a more critical eye. And by the end of it, I was like, nope, it still takes me there every single time. It yeah. takes you on a journey that no other movie can. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. I'm sticking at a nine and a half out of 10. All right. I, for me the true struggle that I have, do you need to delve into the true depravity of humanity yeah. to get to the lessons that he does? Yeah. And I don't know if you do. Well, and I think that that just comes with the territory with Tarantino. It, it does, he's, yeah. he's never not going to take us there. You 100%. Know? Yep. Tarantino, I don't know how to describe it. He's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. The way that he takes you to places is absurd and over the top doesn't even begin to describe what he's doing. Yeah. And that's why I can't give it a 10 out of 10 because I just, I don't know if we have to go as deep as he takes us. Yep. I get that. This is not a movie that's going to be for everybody. Yeah. And I don't know that I would tell like my mom <laughs> to watch this movie. I hope you know that you wouldn't tell. Yeah. Your absolutely. Mom to watch absolutely. This movie. That doesn't mean that it's not a singularly unique piece of movie making. Right. And that's what this is. So, Brad gave it a 9.5. I gave it a 10. But we want to know what you think. So please hop on Twitter, hop on Instagram, hop on Facebook. Hit us up on social media. Brad, where can they find us? At Film Whiskey with an E. At Film Whiskey. Next week, we will be back talking about the 2009 hit, 500 Days of Summer. I feel like we've gone from Lion King. <laughs> We're all over the map, fiction. man. To 500 Days of Summer. We'll introduce a little bit of levity next week. We'll talk about 500 Days of Summer for the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.